Well, Ian Ground, it is good to see you. Hi, Ben. Uh, How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, welcome to uh, Sophia, which is the name that we've given the show that we've been doing, Massimo Piliucci and I. Um, cool. We always start with introductions, Ian, so why don't you introduce yourself, and then I'll do the same, and we can get started. Okay, well, my name is uh, Ian Ground. I live in uh, Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the UK, it's the northeast of England. Uh, I'm currently working at um, Newcastle University, uh, where I'm teaching philosophy to fine arts students at the moment, which I'm enjoying a lot. Um, and um, I'm also, I act as secretary of the British uh, Wittgenstein Society, so I'm involved in a lot of Wittgenstein-related activities. Uh, my kind of background, really, um, I have a long history of involvement in uh, adult and community education, which I'm very proud of. Um, and research-wise, my main interests have been historically been in uh, the philosophy of art and the states, and uh, uh, in Wittgenstein, of course, and in particular in relation to uh, um, philosophical problems concerning our understanding of other kinds of animal. So uh, uh, animal cognition, animal minds is a, is, a, is a big interest of mine. I think it's a kind of area where there's a lot of kind of action, <laughs> a lot of interesting issues that cross over there. Maybe that will come up in some of our discussions today. So that's me. Yeah. Great. So I'm uh, Daniel Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. Uh, I've known Ian for a long time. We go back to, um, I, for a number of years, I was giving papers at the annual meeting of the British Society of Aesthetics with which yeah. Ian was in very uh, much involved. And uh, so he and I developed quite a friendship. And um, I'm really pleased that he's uh, able to be here with me today uh, to talk about Wittgenstein, something that I've been promising viewers that we're gonna, that I was going to get to at some point. <clears throat> but I knew I wanted Ian for it. And so um, we had to wait until uh, our schedule synced. Um, the occasion, Ian, um, of, of doing this in part was due to the fact that you recently gave um, what I thought was really an outstanding paper to the Royal Institute of Philosophy um, uh, called Why Wittgenstein Matters. Yeah. And um, that if, uh, there will be a link provided on the link section to the talk, uh, which is on YouTube, which I'm going to strongly recommend that people watch. It gives a very good sort of introduction to Wittgenstein. And um, I sort of pat figured I'd pat on our discussion a little bit along the, along the um, – topics that you asked there, that you covered there. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Good. So um, let's start maybe, you could maybe you could give me a little bit of your assessment of what is Wittgenstein's current place in academic philosophy um, uh, and, and maybe a couple of some of the reasons why you think that that's, that's the, his current status. Okay, yeah, so it's a, it's a good and interesting question, Dan. Um, that should be clear, I guess, that we mean by academic philosophy here, kind of Anglo-American philosophy, basically, okay? So uh, Anglo-American, largely analytic uh, philosophy. I think Wittgenstein's position there is a deeply uh, ambivalent one, um, in fact, Um on the one hand, if you ask uh, uh, almost any philosopher to name any of the great philosophers of the last century, or indeed of any century, uh, Wittgenstein's name will surely crop up in 
with their top five, or even their top three most influential uh, philosophers. Uh, and then if you ask them, well, just in what respect does Wittgenstein influence your work? Uh, the likelihood is they'll be unable to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> he does it, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so, um, so on the one hand, Wittgenstein is thought of as being enormously important, influential. On the other hand, in terms of how philosophy is done, in terms of um, how it's uh, the practice is carried out, uh, there's a very, at the moment it seems, and has been, I guess, for the last five to ten years, certainly very little um, uh, tangible evidence of that in, in what we're calling mainstream um, uh, philosophy. Of course, study of Wittgenstein goes on amongst people who are interested in Wittgenstein, but that's a different matter. Okay, So Wittgenstein's position is one of um, uh, authority without influence at the moment. Okay? And this seems to me a very peculiar uh, state of affairs, especially if you contrast the situation, uh, the, the, contrast the regard for Wittgenstein, the interest in Wittgenstein uh, from outside philosophy, from outside mainstream philosophy, certainly in the culture at large, uh, in the arts, uh, there's enormous interest in the man and his and his ideas, um, but that isn't reflected in the mainstream uh, itself. Okay, um, now there's a whole kind of host of reasons why that's the, that's the case. Um, some of those I think are to do with um, how Wittgenstein did philosophy. Okay, what his approach to doing philosophy was. And a second set of reasons that are kind of related, they're not separate, but they're distinguishable, I think, are to do with uh, what he had to say and how that relates to what uh, mainstream philosophy thinks it's important to say today. Okay? It, I mean, insofar as mainstream philosophy speaks with any kind of uh, single voice, which is, you know, obviously there are diverse, diverse, diverse voices within mainstream philosophy, right. but looking at a whole, as a, as a, so the situation is a kind of paradoxical one then. So uh, uh, we can talk about you know, how, the, how that works. Yeah. So, so, so before we before you give me a little, your, a little account of the two types of reasons that you think Wittgenstein has sort of lost influence, yeah. just to give the audience a, a rough sense of the history, what would you, when would you say was the peak of Wittgenstein's influence? In that, in the analytic tradition, and maybe you know, thirty seconds on in what way that influence was felt. I mean, <clears throat> you know, there was there was a there was a movement in the in the mid twentieth century called ordinary language philosophy, which he clearly yeah. had an influence on. But when would you? How do you see the history? When was his heyday, and what primarily? Uh, what influence did he primarily have before he sort of fell out of favor? I suppose. I mean, I suppose that the kind of heyday. Um, was in the kind of 60s through to the early to mid 80s, I would that say. That late? I suppose, yeah. So I think so. Um, um, uh, certainly he had a influ massive influence on what you'd call kind of ordinary language philosophy. It's very moot, okay, whether or not uh, those people who called themselves ordinary language philosophers got Wittgenstein right, okay? It's very moot indeed whether that's the case. Okay. Just as earlier in the century, 
the logical positivists had claimed Wittgenstein as one of their own and were wrong, right. I'd also argue that ordinary language philosophers kind of picked up on just some bits some some aspects of Wittgenstein and ran with those. And this was a very partial picture of what his ideas were about. Right. Okay? Um, so uh, throughout the 60s, I mean, I, it became, in a way, it became a rather unhealthy situation eventually because I think that the interpretations of Wittgenstein that were offered them were often really quite formulaic. Okay. Um, there are a host of books called The Language of <laughs> Something or Other, right. uh, which had a very kind of similar motivation, and a similar kind of um, way of solving or dissolving philosophical problems. Um, uh, and I think that the, the situation now is, just as I think we've begun really to get a deeper insight into why Wittgenstein's ideas really matter, okay, um, that his influence has waned. That may not be coincidental. <laughs> the, the more the, the, when we had him wrong, he was really important, right? <laughs> yeah. Now that we're starting to figure out what it really is, he... yeah, yeah. The situation is not dissimilar to that which followed other great thinkers. If one thinks of you know, the post-Kantians, for example, were in a very similar situation. It wasn't until much later, I think, that um, we really began to understand Kant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so this is not not to be unexpected when one's dealing with the figure of the statue. So why don't you now talk a little bit about the, the two sorts of reasons why you think Wittgenstein is is difficult for uh, for analytic philosophers to digest and or distasteful to said philosophers. Yeah. You mentioned both the way he goes about doing his work and also the substance of it. So maybe you could talk a little bit about yeah. each of those. I, sh I should probably first say, Dan, that um, let let's just for now just talk about the Wittgenstein of the philosophical investigation. That's all we're going to talk about. Okay. Today, yeah, so so what's commonly known as the later Wittgenstein, lots of controversy about that. Let's not go there with that for now for this talk. Okay. Um, so if we look at the, his masterpiece, which is the Philosophical Investigations, it's recently come out in a new translation and edition with some interesting changes and uh, uncertainty, the book that follows that and so forth. Look at that group of work, right, amount of work. I mean, what's one thing that's very striking about this is that, the, as is um, uh, familiar to anyone who's come across it at all, if you haven't, I urge people to just to have a look at the, the investigations, start reading it, is that one doesn't get straightforward statements of an argument with premises and uh, conclusions and claims being laid out and nicely bulleted and so forth. Okay? It simply doesn't work like that. What we have is a whole a kind of drama really going on in this text in which all sorts of different kinds of voices come and go. All sorts of protagonists are there, um, uh, putting forward different positions, offering different slants, um, and there seem to be very many kind of abrupt changes of topic. So we go from one numbered remark, and remarks are numbered. Uh, some are very short, just one sentence. Some are a page length. Okay. Um, we see very abrupt changes of topic, we see sudden starts, sudden stops. Um, so sometimes there will be an extended discussion of example, sometimes a series of short examples. Um, and so 
uh, and the method is one also of, of, of engaging the reader. Yeah, ask, he asks you questions. Asking questions. Yeah. So, I mean, I think someone counted this once that in the investigations. Uh, he asked 784 <laughs> questions. <Jesus. laughs> and of those, only 110 are actually answered. And how many of those are the answers intended to be correct? Uh, well, only 70 of those. The answers <laughs> need to be wrong. <laughs> so it's only a tiny fraction. We ask the question and gives us the answer. Of course, this is meant to engage us in the process of thinking for ourselves with him. So it's a, it's a really, really very intense experience to read the investigations if you read it. Uh, I, think it's, I think it should be read. Okay? Um, and so uh, it's not easy in that case then to just uh, read, to read the investigations or to, to study as I have done for, uh, for, for many decades. And then to say, well, you know, okay, what did I learn from that? Okay, and just to kind of summarize what you got out of it. Okay, um, rather like in some ways, rather like dealing with you know or kind of experiencing a work of art. Okay? It's not very easy to kind of paraphrase afterwards what the what the upshot of all that was. So it's quite a, uh, it's, a it's an intense experience to read the investigations. It's in many ways, I think, and indeed. Uh, even Dan Dennett says, yeah, of all people, it's well, a liberating experience okay, to read the investigations. It doesn't seem to have liberated him all that much, though. <laughs> oh, no, <that's> <laughs> so, he certainly used some insights from Wittgenstein in the right place. Okay? Um, and so uh, it's, very, it's, it's very hard then for mainstream philosophers just to say, well, okay, um, uh, I can use that in the kind that that idea makes sense in the project that I'm engaged in now. That's interesting me now. Okay, and of course, as it happens, when mainstream philosophers, as they occasionally do, of course, you know, reference Wittgenstein. One problem is that they'll come up with a particular view about what Wittgenstein says there, and then a danger is that someone else will say from a more, more Wittgensteinian perspective, oh, you haven't got Wittgenstein right there. What you mean is, right. what he actually right. says is, and they say, well, okay, you tell me what he really means. And the Wittgensteinian scholar says, well, it could be this or it could be that. Well, well hey, I just want to use one of the ideas as a philosopher. I'll just leave it alone. It's too, it's too toxic okay, for me to, to use. It's too hot. Okay? And so... Uh, for that reason, the investigations is a difficult book to uh, to use to kind of take bits from. Okay, right, right. And the danger is, I think, it's perceived at least as being a book where you have to take all of it, okay, or nothing. And that's a, that's a, well, that obviously makes life difficult for the mainstream philosopher. Okay, so that's that's one kind one one kind of reason. Uh, I, I suppose the second sort of reason now, if we want to move on or move on to that, is about what Wittgenstein says you know, about the content. Okay, and of course, I should say by way of a precursor to this that um, these two issues are linked because part of Wittgenstein's method is to be, and also what he says is to be very skeptical about the nature of philosophical theories and claims. Okay. That he doesn't think that philosophers are in the business of making claims in the way that the empirical scientist does. So, um, so part of what he wants to say is an anti-philosophical message. Okay. 
and and this this is part and parcel of the methods where we don't get very straightforward, uh, clearly laid out claims in the same way as one does one might find in other philosophers. Um, uh, one finds this anti-philosophical message, which again will go down rather badly with the mainstream philosopher. After all, the you know, mainstream philosophers have to live with real academic jobs and seek tenure and show their impact to their funders and so forth. Um, and and the impression that they uh, conform of Wittgenstein is that he's saying that really the problems that are caused, that the problems that we are the exercises in philosophy are really just kind of pseudo problems. So let me ask. Okay, so on that on that front, so let me ask you. Um, it certainly that certainly makes a lot of sense. And, no, no, especially today in the professionalized academy, um, um, and philosophy was professionalized in Wittgenstein's day, but not to the extent that it is now. And the academy wasn't the way it is now, and the humanities weren't under the kind of pressure then that they are now. Yeah. Um, and so all of those things are not going to be very friendly. Those factors are not going to make people very friendly towards an anti-philosophical philosophy. Um, but but let me just ask you on the substance of it, um, one could say very much as similar things about the philosophy of David Hume, that David Hume was extraordinarily skeptical about exactly the sorts of things that philosophers were doing. Yeah. Um, and yet um, Hume is a darling of the analytic philosophy community today. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and Wittgenstein is that. Without going into too much detail, could you maybe say a word or two about how you see the, the philosophy of Wittgenstein as maybe being worse than Hume's or having a why, – why the disconnect? Why, why do they love Hume so much and hate and not like oh. Wittgenstein when they had similar – the conclusions they come to or have similar impact on what well, philosophy it's, it's a good point there. I mean, I, I mean, it's not just Hume, isn't it, who's anti-philosophical, if you think. And there's a sense in which Kant too you – know, Kant was arguing you know, against the philosophy of his time, uh, right. arguing against a certain kind of metaphysics, right? And one can find it to uh, you know, in philosophers like Nietzsche, of course. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So, to many great philosophers, okay, uh, uh, part of what they wanted to say was that there was something very deeply wrong with the philosophy of their times, okay, and not just with a particular kind of claim being made, a particular set of philosophical claims but with how philosophy conceived itself. Okay? These two things always run together. Okay? Now, um, why is it that people um, uh, uh, are alienated, or is it so it seems, by this kind of anti-philosophical thought in Wittgenstein but not in Hume? Well, partly I think Wittgenstein is fairly, certainly at places, uh, very forthright about it. Okay? So he uh, certainly in the remarks around the hundreds, early hundreds in the investigations, um, we get some very forthright messages about um, about philosophy. And moreover, he compares um, philosophy to a kind of illness, a kind of sickness. <laughs> right. Yeah? And as of what he's doing as being a kind of therapy or a kind of cure. Of course, it's not it's not any kind of psychoanalytic cure in that sense. Okay, right. it is a, a but it is, it is a kind of 
an attempt to get us to think much more deeply about not just about what we think, but about how we think about such matters. Okay? Right. And this is quite threatening now. And I think that unlike, uh, I think one difference with um, um, between Wittgenstein and Hume here, though one can exaggerate the even this difference, is that Wittgenstein tries to be much more forensic in the, in in examining the sources of why we go wrong. Okay? That's good. I but, like that. Yeah. Tracing. Uh, Hume, we get claims and assertions. Okay. Uh, we get some diagnosis, but not so much. Whereas in Wittgenstein, really, you could say almost the whole of the investigations is about diagnosing in great detail and with enormous and ruthless uh, kind of self uh, honesty and criticism. Yeah. Okay. Because it's his own thinking that he's criticizing at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not anybody else's. He hardly mentions other philosophers and in investigations. Okay. Himself, Frege, James, <laughs> well, that's about it, more and or less. Saint Augustine in the first quote. Saint, Saint Augustine. <laughs> but even then, not, not as a philosopher, but as a but as someone writing his own biography. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um so uh, uh so his 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 anti philosophy is much more kind of avert, okay? but I think one ought to get that in context now. Ironically, some of the many of the things, in fact, that is that Wittgenstein is saying when he's diagnosing the sources of these problems, line up rather well with the claims made by uh, cognitive scientists today about the sources of error in our own thinking. One of the common claims today is that we are much we are we are still very likely to go wrong in our thinking in systematic ways, okay? even when we think we're we think we're our most clear-headed and rational. Right. Right. Even when we think we're we're being as objective and rational as we can, that we still go really wrong. I mean, as the old the old joke has it, you know, everywhere you look these days, you see confirmation bias. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, so Wittgenstein is offering this kind of kind of forensic diagnosis, um, but he, it's important to remember of of our thinking. But it's important to remember that he's not here, you know. At, at some level, he's criticizing much more than just philosophy and philosophers. Yeah, okay? yeah. He's saying he says that the 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 pictures, and he thinks thinks them here. Uses the term for pictures, uh, uh, which kind of mislead us. So it says they lie in our language. It doesn't say they lie just in philosophy. Right. They lie in our language. It says language seems to repeat those pictures to us inexorably. Okay? We are as well held captive by them. But of course, for Wittgenstein, language is not some kind of formalized set of symbols or system. Okay? It's our way of life. Yeah. Yeah, he says that the imaginal language is to imagine a form of life. So, so it's, this means that the ways in which we go wrong are, are arise out arise as soon as we begin to reflect upon what we actually do. Yeah, okay? and in that sense, he's he's that's a very clear sense also in which he's different from Hume because yeah. for Hume, Hume is really interested in how we go wrong. When we engage in philosophical investigation, yeah. and for Wittgenstein, it's more general than that. It's whenever oh, yeah. we engage in a certain kind of reflection upon our, our upon our practices. So that's, right. that's um, right. And so it's got a much bigger scope um, 
Um, so maybe it's a it's a great point at which for you, to get into the specifics of of Wittgenstein's critique uh, into the to the to orientation of Wittgenstein's critique, which you in your talk characterizes fundamentally um, a critique of what you call representationalism. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what representationalism is, as you understand Wittgenstein understanding it, yeah. and also um, the way in which representationalism um, manifests itself uh, in ordinary thinking, as well as obviously in philosophical reflection. Okay, so so I think this is kind of been the kind of dominant representationalism of one kind or another has been the kind of dominant uh, paradigm in. In philosophy for a very long time now, and it's been it's been absolutely central uh, since uh, since the 60s. I mean, the cognitive revolution is actually built on it. But let's go back a bit and see. It starts how, in the Enlightenment, uh, wouldn't you say? It starts in the Enlightenment. I think it goes a long way back, but one yeah, sees yeah. it. It's made explicitly as a kind of doctrine. You know? uh, uh, of course, Wittgenstein himself did the most to develop this in his earlier book, the Tractatus. Right. Okay. Let's, let's try and think about how it arises from our ordinary thinking. Okay? What is it? Yeah. So, so, so I mean, if, when, if I talk to people who have no experience of philosophy at all and they say, well, what's Wittgenstein about? I mean, isn't he about language? What they, what they have in mind is that Wittgenstein is saying that language is a kind of social uh, 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 activity. So Wittgenstein thinks of language as a social activity. And they kind of get that. They go, yeah, I, that, that makes sense. But... No, that seems like a that seems got to be right. Okay, um, we use language to communicate, don't we? Okay, uh, 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 but isn't that they want to say? Isn't that kind of obvious? Right? Isn't that you know that already? What's so great about that idea? And of course, we use language to to talk to each other. Okay, and I would say, yeah, you're you're right. Okay, Wittgenstein it, it, it does take the view that language is a social and public uh, activity. But it is so, and here's the thing, you know, all the way down, right? all the way down. What do I, what do I mean by that? Well, if, if, I, if we say, well, what do you, we say language is a social activity, what people have in mind is something like this, that language is used to communicate our ideas, okay? to communicate our thoughts and our feelings. Okay? But first of all, we have to have something to communicate. We have to have ideas, thoughts, and feelings. We have, to have ideas, <laughs> first of all. Right. Okay? And, and so I, 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 prior to expressing them or describing them in language, I must already have them. And so I have a thought, okay, that it's raining outside. I think a trivial example. It usually is here these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then I can choose... Uh, whether or not to tell my good friend Dan Kaufman about the weather in England, okay? But uh, the, but the, the question is, well, what about this? The thought, right? What about the thought or the idea, okay, that it's raining outside, the weather is terrible outside? Okay? Well, that can't be a matter of kind of the thought is a, a matter of kind of public and so, uh, social activity, right? That's got to be something unique and uh, private to the individual. It comes first. Okay? So first come represent first come ideas, okay? thoughts about the world, and prior after that we communicate them. Now, 
what are those ideas uh, uh, prior to language? What are those um, uh, thoughts? Well, one generic term to describe those is the term representations. Okay? So at first I represent the world to myself. Right. I represent how things are. And then I may or may not tell other people about them. Right, right. Okay. Uh, now, we say, well, well, that's interesting. Okay, that's how things are then. So uh, we're social on the outside, but on the inside, we're representational. Gotcha. That's, so that's the thought. Okay. Now, how does that, that, that get going? Well, that view has become the kind of dominant view of what the mind is, really. So for many cognitive scientists, for example, okay, what the so-called cognitive revolution uh, was about was the, the explicit realization, as they saw it, that the mind is a representational engine. Okay? That the business of the mind is to represent the world and to manipulate those representations internally. So the picture that we have of, it, of the mind is that external uh, stimuli come in through perception, Okay, that this gives rise to representations of how the world is. Okay, that we, we the mind manipulates these representations. Okay, and produces some kind of response. Okay, which is appropriate to the environment we're in. Okay? And then, so the main challenge then for the scientist is to give some account, either neurochemical or computational, yeah. depending on your orientation, of yeah. what those representations are exactly. and how they causally interact exactly, with each other. Exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. So, 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 so how do those representations work in virtue of what are they representations? Okay? And what's their nature? What kind of thing are they? Okay? Let's, let's, notice, let's notice one thing right away, okay, that they can't just be internal sentences for me in English. Because part of what we're trying to understand is right. English. <laughs> trying to understand, okay, if we're trying to understand how I can communicate anything in language, I can't just say, well, that's just an internal language, which is exactly like English. It will be completely non-explanatory. Right. Indeed, uh, Wittgenstein makes this move very early on. It turns out to be a move that in its shape repeats throughout the investigations when he points out that we really mustn't try and understand what it is to speak, to learn a language, as if we were explaining what it is to learn a second language. Right. So the, the problem of uh, explaining how on earth anything in English means anything okay, is a different kind of question from how it is, given that I speak English, I can translate something into French, right? Okay, because we're talking about how meaning gets going at all, right? Okay? So, so, so the, the 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 mainstream view has been, well, what's the nature of this representation? But they can't, they kind of realize that. Okay, it can't just be English; that would be circular. Okay, so maybe it's some kind of um, a, 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 a neuralese. <laughs> right. Mentalese, it's sometimes called. Mentalese, okay, right. or, or, or below that, neuralese. Okay? Some, um, something which has the same sort of structure at some fundamental level as language has, okay? but isn't language. That's really so quite an extraordinary. Actually, if it, if you step it's, outside and think about it, it's actually quite an extraordinary idea. So the idea is that yeah. um, the sentence that it's raining in English is 
preceded by some yeah. mental sentence, which is not in English, that says it's raining, and somehow that's a bunch of chemicals well, <laughs> that are arranged. What, like the words? I mean, the, the, well, it's, they ought to, there's got to be some kind of fact. Okay, there's got to be some kind of fact in the end, which uh, which is the representation of the fact that it's raining outside. Okay, this is a bit of a weird idea because here's the here's the here's the fact I'm I'm representing. It, it's raining, and here's the fact doing the representing. Okay, well, how, how is it that this fact represents that one? Right, because we need some kind of arrow. Because we're not going to say okay that the weather is the representation of the state, relevant state in my brain. It doesn't work that way. There's a kind of asymmetry involved in representation. This is something that other philosophers have pointed out. Okay, it's the kind of move actually that's there in uh, people who've taken much from Wittgenstein, like Putnam, for example, and uh, and indeed John Searle. It's also a problem that became known in um, AI circles, artificial intelligence circles, as uh, the symbol grounding problem. Right. Okay. Right. That that is how could the states of a computer which are, after all, in the end, just voltages. You know, how could they um, actually symbolize anything? Right. So let's just, just because we're talking to a lay audience, so let's just unpack yeah. this a little bit. So sure. the problem here kind of is whether something can be representational intrinsically, right? Because yeah. Because some things are. So I could draw a picture of a rainy day and yeah. – it would represent the fact that the, it would represent that fact by virtue of looking like it, right? Well, yeah, okay. I'm trying but to be you, simple here, right? Well, yeah, um, that's fine. Okay. But I guess yeah, the, the puzzle yeah. then is how does a sentence do that, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people would say, oh, well, it does that by way of some sort of convention, by way of some way of some sort of agreement. We all agree that these string of symbols means this, and yeah, yeah. this string of symbols mean that. But then, of course, the question is, in order to have that convention, we already have to be talking to each other. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so it can't be that all, all meaning is a matter of convention, right? Mm -hmm. Because at some point, you're going to have to get something to get it going. That's right. And so that then, then tempts us to think that something deeper down earlier is intrinsically representational, like right. a picture is, right? Yeah. But, but that's, that's where we get into the trouble, is it not? Well, indeed. So, so that, that, that is certainly right. the right question, then, is whether or not representations are, in the philosophical sense, real, as opposed yeah. to kind of ideal, that is, uh, a matter of agent dealing, a matter of agent interpretation. Okay? And, and the, 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 the dominant view is that representations, at some level or other, must be intrinsic somewhere. Okay? And you say, you better look at the, it's the brain doing it, then. Right, okay? right. That, that seems to me kind of just really just deeply mysterious how that could possibly be. Right. I mean, I just, uh, it seems to me a kind of superstition, really, to think that states. People say the, it, but it's hard to imagine what it could uh, mean, right? Exactly. Yeah. So here's, here's a state which, is, which intrinsically represents okay, some, other, some other state. Okay? Now, uh, of course, what answer they will give is well, how does it do it? How could it be? Well, they want to bring in your idea of resemblance there. Okay? Right. The state does look, the representing state does look, okay, in a very extended sense of look. Okay? Yeah, very. Like it's represented that it shares the same structure. That's what we would call isomorphic with 
okay, the state being represented. And this, in fact, is precisely the view that Wittgenstein developed in his, in his first philosophy. Right, but it's one thing. Wait, but but it's one thing to say that the that that the that the the strings of characters in a sentence represent something because you can look at their syntactic structure, right, and say you know subject predicate matches in a certain way, uh, thing and property, right. But how on earth would chemicals do that in your brain, right? How would they be structured to represent? The fact that it's raining, or that your well, dog's on, cat's on the mat, or, or... I think I think you're, you're you're right, but I think even <laughs> even saying that much might be a bit too much for Wittgenstein when we talk there about even about subject and predicate in that way. That kind of map. That's still the thought that um, uh, uh, there's there's a natural mapping. There, yeah. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Just as you said that the picture okay, just looks like. Okay. Well, in fact, he he puts a lot of he puts a lot of work into thinking about even. The idea of one of a, how a picture looks like something. Right, right. So he has an example of you know I do a, a stick I do a, a, a stick man drawing it with a hill and a man walking up it. Okay, and he says, well, you know, how is this a picture of a man walking up a hill and not falling down one? Right. right. That is it, that every picture also needs an interpretation. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's not even the pictures. Okay. Represent okay, absolutely objectively, independently of agents involved in at some degree of inter- interpretation. So, so I hope that makes it a little bit clearer. Yes, what I think very clear. Is yes. So the thought is it kind of lines up really as a kind of a brain, this kind of a neurochemical state, okay, uh, a high level brain state, a mental state, something like a proposition, a sentence. You know, in a natural language, and these all line up in one chain, okay, and represent okay, how things are in the world. Right. Okay? Tends to go, by the way, at the, at the top end of that kind of great chain of mean, meaning. That the top is the thought that the best, the best thing you can possibly have for representing the world is a scientific theory. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Okay. So that's, that gives you the best possible kind of mathematical modeling of the world is the purest of pure representations of how the world is. Right. So it's interesting how this view kind of locks into a certain view about how, how science works and why science is important. Okay. Look, Wittgenstein wants to tell us that that whole picture is deeply wrong. So maybe now you can sort okay. of talk through how yeah. that's supposed to go. What's what's fundamentally wrong with this? I mean, although I think we've seen glimpses in, just in our characterization yeah. of it, what's wrong with it, but maybe you could be more specific. Uh, in, yeah. in... Well, so, so, certainly, I mean, he, one, one central thought for Wittgenstein is that this, this, this account is non-explanatory, okay? That it does, it, it really assumes what it's trying to explain. That is, it's trying to explain how meaning gets going, and again and again, he shows us how, in fact, you already assume in the existence of meaning right. in offering this explanation. This right, right. So, so the obvious example of that is to say that something has meaning by way of convention. That clearly is unexplanatory because yeah. the conventions yeah. are a bunch of conversations that people have. And yeah. so that needs to be explained. Yeah. But I guess what then happens is is that a person what – what's ultimately non-explanatory about this is that at some point, one simply is saying that the way we explain representation 
is by saying that some things are inherently representational, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. not ex- obviously that's, 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 that's not explanatory. It's, it's also, like you said, you know, a, 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 a very non a non naturalistic explanation, right? because at some point we are just positing. Yeah. Okay? As someone like Sale has to do in the end, okay? Yeah. There just are these intrinsically representational states. Yeah. Okay? So. What we get then is a, is a, you know, the investigations in, in large part, okay, is a diagnosis and forensic examination of how we end up finding it natural to say things like, like that, okay? And we get, and, and getting ourselves into a real mess, okay? And we did get ourselves into a mess. I mean, at, at one point, when certain views about meaning were going about what, what you could do with a computer, and in parallel, certain views about, um, uh, the importance of language were going on, and a kind of behaviorist tradition. Okay? It seemed really very natural for people to say that um, uh, that computers might one day think, but the dogs don't. Right. <laughs> so, it's right. A, what kind of mess of different pictures here are crossing over yeah. and, and, and clashing? Okay. So Wittgenstein offers us this long account then uh, uh, trying to trace through all the different sources of this set of ideas. Okay? Some of them arise from thinking about the nature of language. So one set of conceptions is, well, one set of worries or one part of his diagnosis is that this, this conception of, uh, of, of representations involves thinking of language as, a, as primarily being one kind of thing being describing. Okay, saying how things are in the world, that things are thus and so. Okay, the putting describing as being what language is really about, and all the rest of the things that we do in language. Okay, like commands and jokes and prayers and exhortations and all the stuff that we do in language, all the rich, all the rich uh, uses of language that we actually find in human life, a kind of Parasitic and peripheral on describing, right? So, so part, especially in the early parts of the investigations, he's trying to disabuse us of this this very simplistic representational view of language yeah. to show us that it, we do all sorts of things with it, right? All sorts of things, many of which don't involve or seem not to involve representation as such. Okay? Yeah, yeah, that's one thing he wants to do. He also wants to show how this um, hooks up, this account of language and meaning hooks up to a particular notion of what the mind is. Okay, So on the picture that we have, language, as it was going on on the outside, it's the outer, how we engage with others. But the real representational hard work is going on in the inside, right. in our heads. Okay. Right. That's the thought, okay? And so it involves this, this distinction between the inner and the outer, which, of course, he doesn't explicitly, doesn't explicitly do this, but one can see it, certainly many of the things that he wants to say make it obvious that his, this is an idea that goes way back to Descartes. Yeah, okay? absolutely. This is really the Cartesian picture, okay, of the individual mind as being complete in itself, okay, and only afterwards, okay, Engaging with the world, yeah, with and with less certainty, right? More certainty <laughs> about the internal than about the external, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 The epistemological issues will be a, a whole right. separate area, but certainly that's that's right, right? Okay? And so we we also get going on an account of 
um, this the notion of this inner privacy, the notion of the inner life, okay, and how we how we have a false picture of what that innerness consists in. These things come together, I think, the account of language and the account of mind in the long set of remarks about what it is to follow a rule in the investigations. Okay. And that can often seem to the to someone new to Wittgenstein, new to philosophy, rather odd. Why is he so concerned with rule following? What's that about? Okay. Um, and uh, he talks about all different ways in which we might be follow a rule, and all different kinds of rules, from you know following a rule in chess, from following a rule like add two in arithmetic, okay, to being to following um, copying out a sentence, okay, yeah. or reading a sentence as a kind of rule following, or even being guided by somebody in a dance, right? All sorts of apparently um, diverse phenomena, okay. He, he, he asks us to look at through the lens of, of rule following. Okay? But what, I guess what he's, really, what he's really using this for is, is we might say rule following is, is, um, looks like a paradigmatic, seems central to um, what it is to mean something. That if I'm to mean something by a word, okay, or by a phrase or an expression or a sentence, then I'm using it in some regular rule governed way. And to put it in different terms, okay, we might say what we have here, rule following, is a, is the proxy for concept possession. Right, right, right. right. So the idea the idea is is that rule following is at the as at the heart of practices like languages because um, wrapped up with the very idea of a concept is the idea of its correct and incorrect application. Right. So what constitutes yeah. a correct application of the concept and what constitutes an incorrect one? Yeah. Um, and um, and so rules are at central to language. Otherwise, mm-hmm. concepts wouldn't have any particular shape, and we we we, we couldn't speak to right. each other. That's right. right. That's right. right. So, so so if I'm to use the word, you know, the concept of dog, okay, then I have to apply the term dog uh, consistently, okay, to a diverse set of phenomena. Dogs all in fact look very different from one yeah. another, okay. Um, I have to apply it to all those all those different different animals, okay, and I and I can do so correctly or incorrectly. Okay. So there's only it looks like there's only rule following if there is this normative background, right? Okay. And moreover, we have to distinguish between between following a rule, okay, and merely acting in accordance with a rule. Okay, I can give you a nice example here. Okay, nice. I once saw a study of how um, uh, in the English game of the game of cricket, okay. Um, um, a, a fielders are able to catch a ball. Right? How do they catch the ball? And they, some some scientists analyzed what they were doing, you see, and saw them running at a certain rate and looking up at a certain angle and so forth. And they worked out that they were solving uh, a quadratic equation okay, of velocity and distance and so forth. Okay, And they said that's how they're able to catch these balls. Okay, And of course, you know, uh, uh, Ian Bothling was a famous cricketer at the time. Said, "Well, you know, I failed O level maths. I have no idea what a quadratic I'm equation not here is. What one of those is. You know? <laughs> oh, that's not. Of course, you don't. Okay, but your brain knows how to do oh, it. Oh God, okay, that's what they said. That's such that, a Wittgenstein mis- a mistake, three, right? <laughs> the, the equation may correctly describe. It may be the rule which describes 
what they are doing. Okay? It doesn't follow from that that they are necessarily following that rule. That following that rule caused them to then perform correctly. Yeah, right. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a true description of what they're doing. Right, right, yeah? right. So, uh, no more than, you know, the fact that, um, uh, that, that objects obey the law of gravity. But they don't look around and see what's the law of gravity here. I'll, I'll do what it says. Yeah. <laughs> the law of gravity describes what they do. But that's exactly so, how, we think, how we commonly think about rule following. We think of it as we, we entertain these mental sentences that yeah. then, once we know what they are, then guide our future behavior exactly. as causes. So, so if that's a... If rule following is at the heart of language, and that is our common conception of rule following, what is it that Wittgenstein is saying is wrong with that conception of rule following as a kind of an obedience to in- internal sentences that we rehearse to ourselves? What's wrong with the picture? Well, first, well, first of all, it seems to involve a commitment to a picture that the, the real work is done internally. Yes. Okay. okay. So, so, so that that means that my, the possibility of my being correct or incorrect in my use of the rule. Is, is already there internally. If that were the case, it would mean that the, 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 the essence of language is really an essentially private inner activity. Now, we can go and wipe a lot private means exactly here, but, but in, internal, I can do it without any reference to the idea of language as a shared activity, as a public activity. Okay? I can have my own internal criterion for, for distinguishing whether I'm using a term rightly or wrongly. And in a uh, famous and controversial set of remarks, uh, which are called the private language argument, but it's sometimes, you know, whether there is a, what kind of argument it exactly is, it's sometimes hard to discern and about which there's controversy. But Wittgenstein certainly wants to say that that isn't, tries to come, that isn't possible. Okay. But in such, in, in, in a situation where um, we, are, we, are, we only have the, quotes internal resources of, a, of the, the, an individual being to deal with. Okay? Whatever seemed right to it would be right. Okay? Right, okay. Yeah. So, so it, it has, it has it, because we're thinking of it precisely as something which is prior to language as a shared activity. Okay. We're thinking only of the mind, you know, really in a Cartesian way. As a okay? private room, in a sense. As, as a, as a yeah. private room, yeah. okay? isolated from, indeed, from the world. Indeed, isolated even from its own body. Right? Just yes, like, just like for Descartes. Descartes. Yeah, yeah. yeah? Okay? But um, in such a situation, if, if we envisage this impossible situation, um, the, the, the agent could not distinguish a correct from an incorrect use of um, a, a, a term. Right. So so let's just be very careful, just so not to confuse people. So the idea is something like this. It's look, um in or in order for this to be possible, it would have to be possible for us to um privately and that's in a sense purely internally without any consideration of the outside of outside um follow a rule. Um the difficulty is is that we also have to admit that there's a difference between following a rule and thinking one is following a rule. Yeah, yeah. The difficulty is that a person in isolation in their own private room right. wouldn't be able to distinguish between yeah. thinking they're following a rule and following a rule because yeah. from their perspective, anything could count as following the rule. Yeah. Because to a certain extent, what constrain what provides the constraint um, is not some private experience, but whether our 
our our performance is accepted in some public way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. so. So the problem is that from a purely internal perspective, we can't distinguish between thinking we're doing something and actually doing it. Is that is yeah. that is that, yeah, yeah. that that's that, that, that's pretty close to it, Dan? I think that that's right. Okay, um, um, but remember, we're not here talking about the physical isolation of a normal human being. No, no, we're talking about a kind of a. We're thinking about, we're thinking about a kind of, a kind of Cartesian self. Okay, but that's really, you see, how we are thinking of ourselves right. in these models that's in right. representation. That's how we, that's how it's, that's how we look to ourselves in these models. Okay, in which we don't even have the normal um, physical expressions of our ideas through our, in our, in our, through 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 bodily expression, for example. Okay, but we're, we're taking all of that out. Okay, so we're not talking about a Robinson Crusoe situation here. Okay, but much more about how this, the the mind is conceived. Okay, in the philosophical tradition, right? Being the, something that could exist independently of everything else. Right. No, the Robinson Crusoe is a very good example because, okay. um, and I think it'll help maybe for people because this is probably the hardest thing in Wittgenstein to sort of get. It's very slippery. Um, the Robinson Crusoe example is great because Robinson Crusoe gets stranded, but of course he already has a language. He already has a language. The language, and, and he's already you know that 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 had a public manifestation. Mm. In order, the picture that the, the the common picture, the representationalist picture that we're talking about, because it seeks to ground all public conventional activity on some Absolutely. internal process, right, yeah. Yeah. has to ultimately take that internal process in conceptual isolation. Absolutely, right? which Robinson Crusoe is not. Right, he's yeah. not in conceptual isolation. He's only physically isolated because he fell off of a boat. Um, what we're trying, what we have to imagine for the representational picture to be true, is a kind of conceptual isolation. I think you're right to invoke Descartes because that's exactly what he was talking yeah. about. And the problem there again is that it's unclear that there is. It's not just that one could tell a correct from an incorrect use, but that it even makes Absolutely. sense to speak of a correct or exactly. an incorrect use. It's not, it's not a question of not knowing that he, that he could be right, but there would, there would be no such distinction. Right. Okay. In other words, what? It's, if, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It's really important here to get get the thought right. Okay, that that representation is trying to explain things to an ab initio right from the right from the beginning, right at the foundation. And so Wittgenstein is now being being absolutely ruthless in saying you're not going to be allowed anything. Okay, outside of this picture, you say you can you can make work. Right. Okay. And he again, again points out no. You're, you're making illegitimate recourse to this idea or to this thought or to this possibility. You're not allowed those. Okay? Indeed, right. I mean, some right. of them are right. quite explicit. Bennett, for example, talks about this as, uh, uh, as methodological solipsism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what it is. Okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, so Wittgenstein is, is, is trying to show that uh, again and again, where we think we have something that will do that job, okay, that in fact it depends upon um, interpretation. It depends upon a context. Yeah. Uh, in any case, th there may not be one kind of it to begin with. So even for example, we might think, you know, what what could be more basic okay, than the act of pointing at something? Okay. Kind of extensive definition, just pointing at something. And even if I'm not allowed to physically point at it, then mentally point at it. Okay. Even about that, Wittgenstein says, okay, uh, this requires a certain kind of context to make sense. Right, right, right. That's that's really important. I think I think the um, 
an example that the audience may 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 find you know easy to easier to to, to digest is the example of the Vic of, of adding two right. Yeah. So if you ask yourself, you know, I start off, you know, two, four, six, eight. Well, what should come next? Mm-hmm. And the natural answer there is going to give is ten. And then if you ask why, right? Yeah. Um, if you try to answer that by appealing to some in purely conceptually isolated internally grasped rule. Um, there's no way to explain why the answer shouldn't be 12 or 14 or 16 because as a private mind, I could follow indefinitely many rules. I could follow the add two until you get to 10 rule, after which only add six. I could be following part, in a sense, what part of what makes 10 the right answer mm-hmm. is that other people accept it, right? Right. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and, that, and that's also a kind of a, dif- a difficult point for people in here. And that's where... People can get very worried about Wittgenstein and why he is, in a certain way, quite subversive. Because you see, the attack here is on the whole idea of having some kind of uh, ineluctable foundation for such things. Okay, whether it's a Platonic entity which is guaranteeing uh, that the rule is right and two, right the way up to ten billion and two. Okay? Right, 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 right. Or, 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 or whatever it is, the thought that it's um, that it's kind of anything would guarantee it. And even the thought, and here's why I have to kind of maybe press you a bit down when you talk about normativity here. Yeah. Even the thought that the practice, that is others, absolutely guarantee okay, well, the rightness and wrongness is up for... No, it doesn't, yeah. yeah. It doesn't do that, okay? It, it, it's just that we do go on in that way. For now, at least. For, yeah. for now. Because yeah. practices so, do change. Practices yeah. change. When you grasp this thought, I mean, it ought to, you ought to feel a little bit vertiginous. You know, that is, you ought to feel a bit as if the ground's dropping away from your feet, okay, yeah. relative to how the philosophical tradition conceived it before. I think that's probably Because once you're there, you realize this is the only firm place to stand. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably because people often think of rules as providing guarantees of yeah. practices when really all they do is describe practices, right? I mean, Indeed. Exactly, exactly so. In the, in, the, in the end, it will there will be only the practice, okay? And, th- and nothing is deeper than it, okay? And, so, and for that reason, this is an extraordinarily naturalistic picture. Yeah. Of of, of 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 human beings and, and human life and indeed minded life, we might say. Okay, but there is nothing outside it guaranteeing that it's all going to carry on making sense. Okay, it's just that it goes on that way. We are animals of a certain kind. Okay, and and, and uh, our, our lives have the kind of shape appropriate to this kind of this kind of animal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and we, and we see so when we look at other species, okay, we don't think that there's something you know outside there guaranteeing that leonine life will go on making sense, right? Yeah, I think there's a book somewhere which says how lions are to behave in regards to one another, which they can check up on if they need to, or there's some kind of um, leonine platonic heaven laying down rules of behavior for, for, for lions, it's very clear to us from the outside that it, it, it has the shape it has because of the, the, the kind of the, the history of the species and how they go on, their biological natures, okay? 
uh, we offer a kind of ethological account of that animal in its environment. Right. My view is, and, and there are, by the way, Wittgensteinians who would very much disagree with me on, on this, but it would be the line that I would take, that we have an equally you know, e ethological view emerging from Wittgenstein about ourselves, okay? and about what seemed to be a magical, wondrous invention or intervention on the part of nature, the invention of language and meaning, and indeed reasons. Yeah. Okay. What looked like an, a kind of, if not given by God, then given by something equally miraculous, as it were, okay, is in fact, has to be thought of as a natural phenomenon. And something that, that everything that's alive does for the most part. I mean, I mean, yeah. you know, it's really so interesting. I'm, I, I, what you're describing is something that everyone thinks we need, but which everyone at the same time knows we don't we we don't have right. In other words, it's funny that we we want we think we need guarantees so much um, to yeah. make sense of our practices, but at the same time, every person knows that that's not how practices are. I mean, look at sports, right? The rules yeah. evolve all the time. Now, yeah. how would it be possible for rules to evolve? on the traditional model of, of rule following that we were talking about, they would mm. have to be these unmovable sorts mm. of ground of all of that, that, that yeah. things. Like, so we're all familiar every day with the changing of rules and the way that rules change. Right. Um, and yet at the same time, I guess what's interesting to me is that we, the false, that this false picture that we hold is a false picture about something, which at another level we know very well is not the case. Right? Yeah, exactly. Let me give you another, another analogy, which may, may help people. But, so let's take money, right? So take, you know, coins and notes. Right? So yeah. we use these every day, okay? We you know we're, we think they're very important. We're, we're sorry if we lose them. We want to make lots of it, okay? We have enormous security around money. Or we, we value money, right? Yeah. So we act as if money has the... the, the Five dollar or the five pound note has value, right? Okay, and we think, well, it, it, how does it have value? Hang on a minute, we think this is weird. It's only a bit of paper. Right? How does that work? And so we reflect this. Ah, there must be something lying behind the money, right? Right. There's, there's something that really has intrinsic value. Okay, and so it's the promise to pay the bearer on demand or right. On, or whatever it is, or the, or the gold in the bank. Okay? Right. That's the real value. Okay. That's like saying words in language don't really have a meaning because there's arbitrary science. Right. The stuff over there. That's what has guarantees the it. That's right. the real stuff. Right. Okay. And then when you when we go and look at the gold, right? We say, well, what makes it valuable? <laughs> Why is that valuable? <laughs> That's only valuable because people want it. Right. right. People will trade in it and use it. It's not intrinsically valuable. Right. Intrinsically, right. you know, it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's intrinsically has that, that, that nature, <laughs> but it, it's not intrinsically valuable in itself independently of our using it. Right. But then you realize, hang on, if that's the case for gold, why didn't I just say that about the paper? <laughs> and that is now the correct explanation. Right. The paper has its value okay, because we use it. Because it's part of a practice. Because it's part of a practice. But it's so not. It's a yeah. famous slogan you know, for, the, for the large variety of cases. Um, uh, when you think about meaning, think about use. Okay. Apply it to the money case. Okay. When you're thinking about how money has value, think about how it's used. Okay? That is, um, uh, how it's traded, how we, how we exchange it, how it lubricates social 
and business and financial arrangements. Okay, yeah, yeah. that makes all that work. Okay, and, when, and, and if you think about how it is that someone might say it's weird because it doesn't have an intrinsic value to paper, it must be something else. Then you're then you're really mirroring the same move that Wittgenstein's criticizing when we say it can't be just the words, right? The things we say, it must be that these things that we think in the in the bank of the mind, right, okay, right, that's, that's really doing the work. That's a lovely analogy with the money. Yeah. That's a really good one. Um, I think I think everybody can understand that, right? Um, and it also shows, you know, that you can you can really miss everything in Wittgenstein if you try to sort of reduce him to these slogans. So, I mean, I think the whole the slogan "meaning is use" oh, yeah. is the most common trivialization of Wittgenstein, yeah. and it's of course correct in one sense, but it's it, what it what it means if you really understand it is very vast and complex, and it pervades everything, all practices. It's not the way it seems trivial, right? I mean, it's it's, it's, not, it's not it's not that you know, if I if I if I choose to use a word differently, then I can uh, then it will mean something different. Right, no, right, 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 right. And it could still be the case that you know um, it might be a bad mistake for us to use you know hopefully. Adverbially, as we as we as we as we, as we do now, okay, um, uh, or, or, or to, to, to change the way we use that term, okay. But I mean, if you just hang on to that kind of that kind of money analogy. Think of all the different things that we do with money. Right. We don't yeah. just do one thing with money either. That's right. We do many different things with it. Okay. And they're engaged in all sorts of different activities. Okay. And in fact, what we have, okay, in the case of money, it is not really even just one thing, but a variety of things which are grouped together under this kind of generic term money. Right, okay. right, right. Uh, 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 but they're all, what they have in common is they're all kinds of uses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think that's really, just like you couldn't give a theory of money, yeah. where by a theory you mean an account of what the thing is that is money, you yeah. could just describe a sprawling set of interconnected practices, yeah. all of which are the money practices. Yeah. So it's a similar mistake to try and give a theory of the mind, right? Yeah. Where the mind is a thing that that, that that you that you then find a you know a physical thing in the world that that corresponds to. Instead, you're describing a whole bunch of practices yeah. that we engage in that we call talking, yeah. thinking, feeling, and so on and so forth. That's right. About maybe in, in this analogy, at least the 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 money would be the kind of the the, the language, okay? Yeah. And, and and the mind is playing the role here of the kind of gold in the bank. Yeah, 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 yeah. So 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 and so when when Wittgenstein wants to deny that there could be inner states which were intrinsically meaningful, this is analogous. Okay, and there will be disanalogies, but it's analogous to saying that the gold in the bank is intrinsically valuable, intrinsic, intrinsically valuable. Yeah, you know? yeah, I really like that. All right, so let's in the just in our we you know in our closing uh, time, let's um because uh, I do want to have just have you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the at the very end. But in terms of our last um to sort of ease ourselves out of Wittgenstein, because I think. Really, we, we gave as clear an account of it in an a, that you can give in this sort of format uh, as can be given. So I don't want to even complicate it more. Um, where do you see? So, so let's let's now forget. Let's let's forget for a minute that philosophy has been so ambivalent about Wittgenstein. Where could you see philosophy and other areas of inquiry going? What 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 do you see as sort of Wittgenstein inspired? 
uh, new directions, either in philosophy or in um, or in uh, the sciences. Um, okay. Maybe you could we could end with you talking about that, and then we'll talk. Yeah, about I, I, my, I think it's worth saying that you know, there is a perception of Wittgenstein as kind of anti-scientific. I don't think that's true at all. Yeah, I think he's anti-scientistic. That is, he's he's he 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 argues against conceptions of explanation, which mean that only scientific explanations count as explanations. Right. So that's what, the, but I, what I do think he does is to clear a whole lot of philosophical confusions out the way so that we can get on with some of the straightforwardly empirical business of understanding ourselves and the world and our, our place in it. Okay. So uh, there's a whole lot of developments going on uh, in the cognitive sciences, for example. Okay. Uh, which are now breaking away from that representationless model. So these are the so-called E approaches. They stress uh, our embodiment, okay, as opposed to our being kind of internal black boxes, representational engines. Right. They stress um, our place in the environment, okay. They stress that kind of ecological, not that ecological conception of ourselves in our in our world, the way that we're not. That, that many of our um, uh, 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 thoughts only make sense in relation to being in a world. Right. They stress what's called our inactive aspect. It's a slightly strange word, but it means that many of the, uh, the the cognitive processes that we engage in are happening, as it were, in real time. Okay. Uh, 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 actively engage with the world so that the system that's doing the, the, the what cognitive scientists think of as processing, okay, don't like the word much, but that's what they think of it, is both the agent and the world together as a single system. Okay? Uh, interestingly, uh, the, the, the best sort of empirical support for that kind of view, which I think comes from a certain reading of Wittgenstein, um, uh, is one that stresses our haptic senses, our, that is touch, okay, and a bit to handle things, our sense of the the gravity of the center of gravity when we pick up an object and so forth. Okay? Right. Um, the the representationist model had great success, it must be said, uh, in thinking about the visual for obvious reasons. Yeah. Okay? But it left the haptic touch to one side. So there's a whole lot of developments going on in the cognitive sciences, which are breaking away from the representationalist model, and which are influencing people working in uh, AI and what we mean by that now, and robotics and so forth. So for example, I think it's pretty standard now for people in AI to, to, to say that you're not going to get any kind of uh, interesting artificial intelligence if it hasn't got you know, a body or something that looks, that counts a bit like a body right. in which in which it's engaged and uh, uh, reacting to and responding to a real world. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The idea that you could have just a kind of virtual intelligence. A mind in a box, literally, a right? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a view still held by some, but it's mostly held by the physicists, actually, okay? Which is weird, uh, yeah. Uh, oddly enough. Um, <laughs> but they have other ecological commitments. For people often now working in robotics, okay, uh, uh, the, the idea of embodied cognition, okay, is looking like the, the, the way forward, okay? 
And that's certainly something that, even if they don't realize it themselves, it comes out of Wittgenstein. Right, right, right. In other areas, one sees uh, work going on, for example, interesting work going on on memory. Okay. So for a long time, a very long time, we've had um, a model of memory as a, as a kind of archival process, okay, in which stimuli comes in, and the representation, as it were, is put in a drawer somewhere. Right, right. It's a kind of indexing system, and then we kind of pull it out, okay? And so there's long been a search for, you know, the engram, which is the kind of the drawer, basically, in right. which to, to, put, to put these things. And... Well, it depends who you talk to a bit uh, about this, but um, certainly there's there are there, there, some eminent uh, scientists working on memory that I've come across who say that we've just had to abandon that way of thinking because it just doesn't work. So, so we think of memory in a much more complicated kind of way. First of all, there's not been one kind of phenomenon. That's pretty important. Okay, making that Wittgensteinian move of saying actually we've got a lot of diverse phenomena. Yeah, here. yeah. They're connected up, but it isn't just one thing. So the very the very first thing we did, which which is to say something like, "Well, what, what's memory then?" was already a mistake. Yeah, yeah. We already committed ourselves to a certain view of things. And the correction has been very much a Wittgensteinian type of yeah. correction. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so we look at memory in its context, the idea of distributed memory, social memory, and so forth. Okay. So that so that there's a whole area going going on there. Okay. Um, uh, I'm interested in um, uh, in animal cognition. Okay? Maybe and talk about that for a minute. What... Yeah. So, uh, and that's an area where all sorts of pictures and, uh, and misleading pictures cross over. Okay. About language, about meaning, about behaviour, about mind. Okay. A whole lot of pictures cross over, including issues about um, what we can know about another mind. Right. So. So one of, the, one of the outcomes of that Cartesian picture okay, was that it becomes problematic for me to know what you are thinking. Or if you're thinking at all. Or if you're thinking at all. Right. And so, in, uh, of course, in your case, then, I can, I, I, I'm supposed to rely upon the fact that I can understand what you're saying, okay, and, and that it gives me ideas. Okay? Of course, in the case of other animals, non-linguistic animals, I can't make that move. Right, and so it looks like a what looks like a kind of academic, kind of uh, a purely philosophical, skeptical problem in philosophy, on this side of the species barrier, on our side, looks like a real world issue. Okay, when the when the ethologist is out in the field looking at the the bonobo monkeys or something. Okay, right, right. So, um, uh, or looking at apes or orangutans or indeed at dolphins. Okay, and so. Um, uh, so many of these problems kind of clash and meet. That's why it's an interesting area. It's a real uh, 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 mashup of philosophical problems. Okay, I think that's an area that's really rife for, um, really ready for Wittgensteinian kind of therapy to say, "Hang on, let's tease these problems out now and and lay that one out." Here's a real tangle. Oh, hang on. If we untangle this, we see it's actually really much more straightforward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, my, and so, so some of my work is engaged in trying to get at the foundations and diagnose why things have gone wrong in, the, in, in this in this area. Why we get a kind of disjunct between, you know, even still today, some animal scientists, a minority more these days, saying I can never know what an, uh, I can never make a claim that involves thinking about an animal having other 
psych- psychological states at all. Right. Be right. careful of the term psychological states, but but that thinking about the mindedness of other animals at all. Um, so trying to kind of get that claim out the way, so we can get on with the empirical business of actually investigating how other animals uh, work and think and live. Okay. Um, so um, this um, people are using these ideas. So someone like um, you know, Michael Tomasello, who's used is one of the leading researchers on on primates. Uh, I mean, his book on uh, how language, uh, book on the evolution of human language, which uses primates as the empirical base. Um, every chapter begins with a quotation from Wittgenstein, hmm. okay, which he makes he makes use of, okay, and, he, he's, and he's trying to show how meaning gets going there, in in the in forms of interaction and forms of cooperation, forms of practice, in other words. That go on in those uh, simian uh, communities. So the idea of a simian practice, or indeed of a of a leonine practice, okay, yeah, conceived yeah. of as a kind of ethological phenomenon, you know, I think is a, is a is a great of great value to the animal the animal sciences, and that's the area which I want to work. Let me ask you a question just a bit very quickly about this, um, because it's so interesting. Um, do you, uh, sort of ask you a Wittgensteinian question about. The, the disconnect between how we think of other people and how we think of other animals. Yeah. Um, it, it seems to me that, that the, it's because we share practices with other people mm. that it's so easy for us to ascribe yeah. to them yeah. uh, thoughts, feelings, and so on and so forth. In other yeah. words, I think that we mistakenly we have a mistaken conception of why we are reluctant to ascribe those things to animals. Exactly. It's not because we have something inside that they miss. Yeah. It's because we're not engaged in practices with them. We're looking exactly. at them from the outside. If exactly. we were engaged with practices with them, we wouldn't think of them any differently. And one of the yeah. ways that you can tell that is um, when we when we interact with other people, when we see someone else writhing in pain and we go over and help yeah. them yeah. – it's not as if we first verify that there really is an internal state going on, right? Absolutely. <laughs> right? I mean, you because we're already engaged in in caring practices right. with these people, right. we do yeah. these things, right? Um, and I think that, that that it's very nice the way you put that in. I see now how animals really could be helpful to clearing yeah. up these problems yeah. because it, they almost provide almost like a control, right? They almost provide yeah. a kind of a yeah. But Wittgenstein's very interesting here because, because he, he's, on, he's on a kind of line. And he, he looks both ways. So at one point he says about dogs, for example, that you know a dog um, a, a, a dog can hope to go for a walk, but it can't hope to go for a walk tomorrow or something similar. Right? So and, and, and that, that that leads some people to say, oh, there you are. You see, it's because the dog doesn't have language that it can only have these very simple thoughts, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, 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 if, uh, that normat- that notion about real hope only gets going when uh, I can use the term hope correctly. Okay, so I then I and then I know it's wrong to say things like um, I hope that this will happen yesterday. Okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so so some people wanted to take Wittgenstein's thought that way, and that rather supports an existing view that there's a massive difference between linguistic animals like us and the rest of non-linguistic nature. But look, Wittgenstein also says this. He says, if you want to know what intention is, okay, well, look at a cat stalking. Right? And here we see that intention 
uh, is not okay a, 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 a human-only phenomenon. It's also the case they can't intend to do something yesterday. Right? Yeah, that's right. It also yeah. has normative command, command, but still we can we can use the term intention in because we see it in lived animal life. Yeah, okay? yeah. it's a concept that's common. Okay, not that the cat has the concept. We have a concept of intention. Okay? Yeah, yeah, but we aren't obliged from. Not not uh, not um, applying that notion or using that notion in relation to other in relation to animals. Right. Not because we have a view about what's going on in its head, okay? But because of what we see the animal doing. Now, this, and this has been an important lesson, I think, in the ethological sciences: the realization that when you're dealing with the animal just in the lab, right, you've no chance of getting that kind of shared practice going, those shared interactions going. You need to be out there in the field okay, to get that sense of how meaning gets going in the animal's life. Yeah. So, so that's why people like, you know, Jane Goodall and the field ethologists, a long tradition of that now, okay, have, have worked in this incredibly painstaking way. It takes years and years, okay, of close observation, very carefully documented, okay, producing ethograms, that is, studies of, how the animal behaves, okay, what its interactions are, yeah, yeah, slowly yeah. building up empirically, okay, a picture of the shape and structure of the animal's life, and it's in that picture that you then see meaning arising. What you are yeah. doing, just finish, is to is to say, oh, oh, I wonder what's going on in the animal's head. Right? When you when you do the real empirical work, that philosophical puzzlement goes away. Right. Because you can see it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I would argue that in, the reason why it's not – I think people might get a mistaken picture of this. The reason why it takes so long mm-hmm. isn't just because the animals have to be comfortable enough with you around to let you look yeah. at them in detail. It's because, to a sense, you have to share their life with them in order yeah. to understand it. Exactly. And that's true of other people. I yeah. mean, one of the things that was so great, and I think, in your paper, which, like I said, will be linked is – your point, you know, at one point you're talking about how, you know, um, we almost talk about uh, a not under, we conflate the idea of not understanding with the idea, the common idea of not speaking a foreign language, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and in other, in other words, this idea is supposed to be, well, you know, um, the private is private in the sense that, in a very different sense of, 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 of me not sharing your language it's 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 and and what you say is no actually it's not different right i mean i mean you're no less alienated from somebody when you can't talk to them than you would be if you were in a private room away from them right in other words it's a mistake to make these distinctions i think um just we would almost be as as hard pressed to understand the behavior of another bunch of group of people whom we yeah. didn't live with, as a bunch yeah. of animals that we didn't of live course, with, right? Exactly. If we think, if we think, if we just think, take that thought and apply it to the think about in the human case especially, and we if, we if we take that view of how we get along together, this has enormous implications now for ethics. Right? Yeah. And how we think about moral philosophy. Okay. That is, it, 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 are are the are the duties that I owe you, and are your and the, is the way that I should behave in regard to you is that founded on some internal set of facts about what you are right? that you're the possessor of certain capacities okay 
And is that what really underlies ethics? Or is it that, no, this stuff goes on underneath, that, that that relation goes on first of all, and those capacities we describe are kind of afterthoughts, really. Yeah. So there's, there's a different kind of view here about ethics that will emerge. It's nothing directly in Wittgenstein that, that one could point to here, but this is stuff that one could kind of you know, pull out of the of his ideas that make us think. And after all, what's really important here, despite the, the view that some people have, the Wittgensteinians form some kind of, you know, quasi-religious cult, <laughs> okay, who are constantly regurgitating the same ideas. Wittgenstein wanted us to learn to shift for ourselves, he says, to think for ourselves, okay, and to take these some of these ideas and some of these approaches and apply them to the problems that concern us now. Okay. But I would hope, and it seems to me one of the things lacking in contemporary philosophy, with the same kind of virtue, that is, this ruthless honesty and, uh, 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 and immense um, self-criticism. Yeah. Taking philosophy kind of, ser- kind of seriously, seriously, not in the sense of being some kind of you know, high-brow game of chess, that we should be playing, okay? But because these things link up to absolutely fundamental and deep things in yeah. our life and the way that our culture thinks about about itself and so on. Yeah, I, I don't. I, the 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 hopeful sort of new directions that you're seeing science mm-hmm. go in uh, in some of the areas of science, at least. Um, I don't yet see happening yet in philosophy. I'm almost wondering whether philosophy is going to have to experience some sort of a substantial crisis before it um, – and the current crisis in the university may very well bring it about. Um, philosophy departments are among the most vulnerable uh, in the current climate because of their perceived inapplicability. And um, um, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we have, things have to sort of get worse for us before we start maybe exploring some more unconventional uh, uh, directions and, and, uh, like Wittgenstein uh, hoped we would. Um, let's just finish in the last minute or two. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're doing? Um, I know you've got an edited book coming out. I know that you've got, I believe, a cha- another chapter in a book coming out. You're doing work with the society. Give us a little quick run through of what work what you're working sure. on right now. Yeah, so um, I've got coming up with um, uh, Bloomsbury a, a second edition, which I'm edit- co-editing, uh, called Portraits of Wittgenstein, and that's a, a second edition with quite a lot of new pieces on uh, all the kind of personal memoirs of people who met Wittgenstein. So this is quite separate from the philosophies. Separately from that, he is, you know, of course, it's linked, but independently of that, he's also a fascinating character, okay, uh, who, um, if anyone wants to understand the 20th century, he's a fascinating kind of lens to look at that century through. Um, uh, uh, and we've put together um, uh, about 80 or 85, I think, separate memoirs of... Oh, wow, uh, that's a lot. That's a huge, huge two-volume work. The original first edition was four volumes. We've, we haven't lost things, but we managed to get into two volumes, even with added some rather new pieces and unfamiliar pieces uh, and lots of unknown pieces, um, uh, including one which I'm pleased to have about Wittgenstein's time here in Newcastle, which is a nice piece that they uh, have. Um, so that's coming out of the Bloomsbury. Okay, uh, so I hope that'll be welcome. Um, I've also just recently come back from um, overseeing in Cambridge, overseeing um, the restoration of Wittgenstein's grave, which was uh, this, 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 perhaps you might think in a rather symbolic way, the, 
the legislature and they had got into quite a mess, okay, and was rather worn, letters becoming illegible. Uh, with the permission of the family, we've now managed to uh, restore that to a much more interesting condition, uh, a better condition. Uh, interestingly, of all the graves in that famous uh, graveyard outside Cambridge, uh, it's the most visited. It is. Yeah. People always, they, the one they come to see there, and there are lots of other well-known intellectuals in that, in that Ascension Parish Church and uh, burial ground outside Cambridge, uh, is Wittgenstein almost holy who they come to see. To see. That's very interesting. Remark about the kind of cultural That's fascinating. of Wittgenstein. So that, that, that there are two projects to do with Wittgenstein, the man. In my own work and um, research work, I've um, just published uh, a paper uh, which is about called Minding Animals, which is in a collection of papers um, about the work of Mary Midgley, the philosopher Mary Midgley, uh, and uh, someone who, who, who taught me uh, as an undergraduate, that's uh, been a, a lifelong friend. And so we produced a kind of fesh shift for her, and that'll be a very interesting volume. And that's a piece really about trends in thinking about uh, animals. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Um, I'm giving a paper on the idea of what is um, of animals, what's manifested behavior at the Kirchberg International Conference in two weeks. So I'll be going off to just outside Vienna to give to give that paper. Uh, and I'm thinking about writing a book on 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 Wittgenstein for Bloomsbury. They've asked me to do that. I'm, I'm considering it, okay, because there are a lot of books on Wittgenstein. Yeah. By some really great people, excellent books, okay. And I'm only going to write one if I can find my own kind of voice. In right. You don't want to add to a core, like to a. To I, a... I, 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 I just do the same thing again. I don't see that necessary. But uh, I'm much, I'm much more interested in the question of what we do with Wittgenstein's ideas. Yeah. Rather than arguing, sort of going over the interpretive questions again. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So something along the lines, maybe as we've been talking uh, this afternoon about that. Okay. Um, so I'm considering uh, doing that. I'm closely involved with the work of the British Wittgenstein Society. Uh, we have about 600 or so members you know, worldwide. Okay. Um, well, we'll, we'll, we'll provide a link to the Society's yeah, webpage. Uh, and we put on a conference every year and we have lectures and so forth and reviews. And so please look at our, 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 our website. Um, um, people with an interest in Wittgenstein can join the Society. It's it's free. You don't have to be a Brit English to join. No, 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 no. This is, this is the society. This British, not the members necessarily. It's a worldwide organisation. Um, and one of the things that the reason why I'm interested in work for that society is because it has a very outward-looking view. Okay, so we're not interested primarily, as some people are, in um, you know exactly how many Wittgenstein's were there and when did he say what and you know, how did yeah. he do the exam standards remark. We're interested in, 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 in getting these ideas out there. We think these ideas, as I've tried to explain, are desperately needed in our contemporary world, okay? that they are, at the very least, at the very least, uh, an urgent correction yeah. the way we're currently thinking. Okay? And, and I believe provide a foundation for much more uh, uh, fruitful investigations uh, both philosophical and empirical yeah. in the future. So society is not a kind of strange cult. Okay? It's very much outward looking uh, and wanting to engage with 
other ideas, other, other thinkers. Well, it sounds like you got a you're a busy man. <laughs> um, I want to thank you so much for doing this, Ian. I greatly appreciate it, and I enjoyed it very much. And we're going to link to as many of the things you talked about as possible uh, in the link section. And um, I wish you the best of luck in all these very interesting sounding endeavors. Well, thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about these things. Great seeing you again, Ian. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.